Hey, one more thing before you go. In this special Way Back Wednesday episode, we revisit episode 176, originally airing 427 of 2022. Hauntings, ghost huntings, and supernatural possibilities. We answer the questions, what's it like to catch a ghost on camera? How do you feel when you ask a question and a spirit actually answers you back? Can paranormal investigators get answers from the other side to validate that ghosts really do exist? This is one of our favorites, and we know that you will enjoy it also. So stay tuned. You're in for a treat. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. My guest in this episode is Eleanor Wagner. She's the founder of the Lady Ghostbusters Paranormal Team, the author of four books, including three in the paranormal and supernatural arena, as well as a supernatural romance novel and a children's book. Eleanor is the producer and host of both a podcast and a live show. As a Ghostbuster, Eleanor was featured on the television program Paranormal Caught on Camera in November 2020. On there, she discussed her investigation of the Sterling Hill Mines in Ogdenburg, New Jersey. And we're excited to share that her fifth book, Sussex County Hauntings and Other Strange Phenomena Part 3, has just been released on paperback and ebook. Welcome to the show. Great. Thank you so much for having me here today. You've uh, got an amazing journey getting to where you are as an author and as a ghostbuster. I think that intrigues both of those intrigue me uh, very much, actually. You know, I, life is a journey, right? It sure is. Uh, let's start at the beginning. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in the Bronx in Throgsnack in New York City. So the I was born Bron in 1965, grew up during the 70s, lived through those 80s as a teenager. <laughs> so going from the Bronx, New York, I know that you, uh, in your bio, you said that uh, you became a country girl at heart, living in the beautiful countryside of Sussex County. Um, so you went from Bronx, the Bronx to cows and horses. I did. In fact, um, my parents had a summer home in Dingman's Ferry, Pennsylvania, when I was a child. So we would travel from the city pretty much every weekend to get away from the city. So I, I knew what it was like to live in the country and have that kind of environment. My husband, his parents were similar in that they had a home on Lake George. So when we were beginning our lives together and were thinking about starting a family, we decided we did not want to raise a family in the Bronx. We wanted to bring them somewhere else. And so we started scouting different areas and a friend of his had mentioned Vernon, New Jersey in Sussex County. And we decided to check it out. And ultimately that's where we ended up, which essentially is about a half an hour away from the border of Dingman's Ferry, Pennsylvania, where I had been traveling my entire life. Little did I know when I was driving Route 15 all those weekends that I would end up living in the county right there. But that's the way things went. And we've been here since 1992. We lived in Vernon for almost 10 years and then ultimately settled in Wantage, where I am currently. Sometimes the life journey puts us where we're supposed to be. Oh, absolutely. That's the way it is, for sure. Okay. 100%. Uh, what was it like? What was your family like as you grew up? 
my parents were immigrants. They both came from Austria and came over, proud to become Americans, worked really hard, got their citizenship, learned the language, and were hardworking adults throughout their lives. They lived to work to raise their family and give them the best life that they could. Uh, my, my grandparents on my father's side came from Austria. They immigrated here from Austria. Okay. Yeah, that's where both my parents met and married, and my sister was born over there. And when they came to the United States, I think she was not quite two yet. It was in the 50s. And they lived in Manhattan because all the family, everybody that was immigrating to the United States was in New York City. I think it was around 86th Street, if I remember correctly. My parents tell me so. Everybody kind of took super jobs and lived in that general vicinity. And so his brothers were already in this country. And so when they came over, that's where they ended up going into the city mm -hmm. and taking a job as a super. And then decided they wanted to buy their own home and ended up in Throg's Neck where they ended up living for the rest of their lives. I mean, well, that sounds like a, what a journey. I mean, it's an amazing journey. My, my father's mother, my grandmother on my father's side are, is, are the ones that immigrated here from Austria, and they settled in Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh area of Pennsylvania. Okay. So, they, so I visited there many times as a, as a child. Um, I visited there probably, I think, from the age of three to probably 10 years old. I haven't been back since I'm oh, okay. 10 years old, but yeah, I remember it vividly. It was pretty, it was nice, nice area actually. Did you ever learn to speak the language, the Austrian language? No, 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 no. Yeah, My I, parents spoke it at home. They spoke, they spoke English, but they, they did speak Austrian around the house. So I picked up both. And then when I went to high school, they offered German as one of the languages you could take. And I jumped at the chance because I wanted mm. to really become fluid in it. And so I, I speak pr pretty well and mm. write pretty well in, in it. And for years and years, I would reconnect with relatives that were in Austria by writing in, in German to them. And they would answer me in English because in those countries, they learn English in school. So we would be mm. pen pals, so to speak. But now with Facebook and uh, social media, it's just so easy to just hop on you know, age Facebook of digital or Zoom. <laughs> and now I could just say hi to all my relatives over there and, yeah. and not have to write anymore, which is kind of sad because I, I love that whole interaction of those letters and being able to hold them in your hand years later and read them and say, Oh gosh, I remember that. Those are so many things in history that people look back to those letters that people wrote yeah. to see what was going on at a certain time frame, And now that's kind of lost. In yeah, unfortunately, social media stuff. we have a pro and a con of the sort of digital age. The pro is that it's much easier for like us to have this conversation where you are, where you are, and I'm across the country in Phoenix, Arizona, and we can have a conversation like we're sitting in the same room having a cup of tea. I know. But, it's amazing. Yeah, but the, the loss of the written word and people forgetting how to, I mean, they don't, I think there's a lot of schools that don't even teach cursive anymore. Um, it's so sad. Yeah, so it's so sad. Funny. That's such a personal thing about somebody, the, their signature. It's, yeah. it's, there's beauty in that. And I really am so sad to hear that they don't do that. And I, I know that a lot of people are trying to bring it back because I think it's really important to just have that personal uh, symbolism for mm. yourself. And not only that, it's, it's like a fingerprint almost also because your signature is 
that personal as a fingerprint itself. Well, plus it's documented history. That conversation is a documented mm -hmm. history. Because most, I mean, we have the benefit of this episode being recorded. So that in itself becomes that. But when we do FaceTime or Zoom with a family member, typically it's not recorded. So whatever was said is kind of lost to the moment. And, you know, you can't go back and, and replay that. And you can't go back and reread that. So, but that's where kind of ghost hunting comes in a little bit. Because maybe, you know, mm -hmm. we can have conversations with the other side, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> So, uh, <clears throat> did you go to college? I went to, I graduated high school. I did some college. I did go to school for writing for children as well, because I was already married when I did that. I never finished college. And when my husband and I were living in Vernon, I decided to go back to school online because it was available at that time and took courses to get a certificate to write for children. So funny that I ended up writing my very first horror novel <laughs> in 90 something. I think it was probably like 92 ish that I started writing that book. And when it wasn't for children, I was submitting a lot of things to children's magazines, but getting uh, back rejection letter after rejection letter, which is very frustrating for a writer. And I had this book idea and I said, you know what? I have all this time in my you know, all this time in the world, and I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to write this book. And I did. It took me about a year to write that very first book. And when I was done, I was like, sense of accomplishment. <gasps> it's all done now. Put it in a box, stick it up in the closet. And that was it. That's where it stayed until 20, 000, uh, 2014. <laughs> you know, I think we all do that. My father was a writer, and I remember him working on a novel endlessly. And whenever you'd see it, it was in one drawer of his desk. And, and whenever you ask him about it, it, it was still in one drawer of his desk. And he, <laughs> unfortunately, he never got it published before he passed, but um, it was always right there. You know, anytime I want to see it, yeah, my dad's writing a novel. Where is it? Right here. And you open the drawer and there it is. <laughs> uh, I think that's and I'm all about them. I'm all about that actual book with the binding. I, I'm, I read Kindle every once in a while when it's convenient for me if I'm out or if somebody's got an ebook that they want me to review. That's one thing. But for me, I find a greater joy in reading a book with the binding and sitting there with the actual smell of the book in front of me. Mm. So I hope that that never goes away because that's my thing. I love books and their bindings. I don't blame you. I, don't blame you. I grew up in a newsroom. So I grew up from very, very, very early age, smelling the ink, watching them paste up, putting it together, my father typing on a, on a typewriter. And uh, you're right, there's nothing like, there's nothing like that. It's, it's not like that. Right. Um, excluding the frustration where you make a mistake and you had to rip it out and then start over again. Oh, my goodness. I remember those days. Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. It's so much easier now. I don't know how we lived without it. But that's just the way it was. We yeah. just did what we had to do. I do what you had to do. Exactly. So mm -hmm. <clears throat> what got you interested in the paranormal? I've always been interested in the paranormal. In fact, when I wrote my very first poem in the seventh grade on a school assignment, it was written about ghosts and goblins and witches. <laughs> I still have that actual poem still in my treasure chest. But I 
started reading John Soul, Stephen King, Dean Koontz when I was probably around 12 and didn't stop reading anything that they wrote. And I've just loved it. So aside from the fact that I lived in a haunted home in the Bronx and would see a spirit every night in that home and then reading stuff like that, it just seemed the natural course event for me to write that kind of stuff. I never, ever thought though that I would get into writing true account ghost stories but that ended up coming later, as I mentioned to you earlier. It took me a long time to get to that point. So what came first? Well, obviously writing probably came first, but from what you just said, a cross between ghost hunting, maybe an early inkling of uh, wanting to ghost hunt came about the same time as you were writing. Well, I was... I'm very sensitive to spirit. So when I was five is when I first saw the spirit in my home in the Bronx. The homes were from like the 1920s. And I don't know who the gentleman ghost was that I saw as a child. Naturally, I was a kid and I was terrified. I didn't know he was only trying to get my attention. Of course, I know that now right. after all these years of learning. But back then, it was just scary to me. And if I could go back to that home and find him again, I'd say, I'm sorry. I know you wanted to just get my attention because he knew I could see him, but I just was afraid. So I knew I was sensitive then. And I was having premonitions here and there as a kid too. And then when some of the premonitions came true, one of them very frightening, I kind of like shut down. I was, I just, mm -hmm. I was probably about 11 or 12 when that happened. And I just kind of shut down and said, oh my God, I could have done something about this. And it happened. And I kind of blamed myself. I mean, it's silly. You're a kid. You don't know mm -hmm. any better. My mom had said, oh, it was just a dream. Don't worry about it. And then when it happened, I just shut down. And then, of course, as I got older and started learning more, I realized you have no control over these things and it's not your fault. And so I began to accept that. But it wasn't really until I was 30, when my, the day my dad died, that I actually had what I call a reawakening because uh, I was on my way home from New Jersey where I lived in Sussex County to get to the Bronx, to him in the hospital where I got a call that they didn't think he was going to make it. And it's about a two hour and 15 minute drive without traffic. And that particular morning, I was sitting in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic on the George Washington Bridge, desperate to get to my dad's side, when he came to me in a vision in the midst of this traffic. And in this vision, he let me know that he was already gone. So by the time I got to my Bronx childhood home, my sister, sisters and my mom were waiting for me, and they confirmed for me that he had already passed. But I had already known that because he told me on the ride over. So that was kind of like a reawakening for me that I realized, okay, I've still got whatever it was that I had when I was a child and maybe I need to do something with this. And so when you're on this journey and you really don't know what you want to do about it, you know, you love the paranormal. I, I had already started going with girlfriends on weekend jousts to different haunted places to spend the night and just was kind of girls weekend, but we were ghost investigating. And so when I had finally submitted my first book that I had written all that time ago, took it out of the closet and blew the dust off of it and said, okay, I'm going to submit this to the publisher. Uh, 
I was working on my second supernatural romance and I was in the middle of it when this idea came to me about writing essentially my story along with ghost stories from my community because at the time I had owned a gift shop, antique kind of shop in town where I live in Sussex County that was haunted. And everybody loves a good ghost story around the campfire. So I'm thinking, hmm, I know Sussex County's haunted. I know that whenever I travel somewhere out of state or to another area, I always look in the gift shop for a book about the ghostly goings on in that area. So I said, let me see what the public feels about me compiling a book of their stories along with mine. And so where social media can be good in this instance, I put it out there and asked, does anybody want to tell me about their ghost story? And it might end up in my book. And so that's what started that first book, the Sussex County Hauntings and Other Strange Phenomena book came from that initial social media post. And you're talking a whole new career started in that moment because the hauntings books were accepted so well received by the, by the public, everybody asking, when's the next one coming out? When's the next one coming out? People were reaching out to me with stories about Sussex County. Sure. But then I was getting stories from other counties surrounding the area. And so I was compiling folders for each of these areas thinking, well, if I get enough stories for that County, I'll write a book about that County too. And although I still have my romance, supernatural romance that I'm working on as well. And it will get done eventually. My life is pretty much uh, overwhelmed with the response and the requests from people for these true life ghost stories, which you can see is the case with Sussex one and two that came out and then Warren counties, which was the third book in that haunting series. And currently I'm working on a Sussex County hauntings part three. There's a lot of ghost stories. Sure is. There are a lot of people that live here, (laughs) a lot of old places, a lot of history, which is another thing I love. I love to uh, talk about the landscape of life and then about the spirits that reside within its boundaries. And people who like history, when they read my books, will learn about the history of the community, the history Mm -hmm. of the building it's in, if I'm able to do that. Yeah. And, um, I love to put pictures in there too. So I've got pictures of the locations back then, the locations, what they look now. And if we get any evidence, I put that where I can in the book, but I put it all on my website too. So if somebody has read about uh, an EVP say, or something that was caught on video, I'll post it on the website so that they can go there And I have separate galleries for each book and they can go to my website and look into that gallery and see the the pictures and the video footage and the audio footage and all that stuff that we've gotten from those locations when we've done investigations on our own or if the residents of the building shared it with me. Yeah, that's amazing. I think that, you know, we all have the fascination with what's on the other side. We all want to know the truth. Is there something on the other side or someone that we lost, one of our loved ones? And so, well, one one more thing before you go. Part of the reason that this was started was because of loss and wondering whether or not there was a way to communicate with the other side and so forth. I think that um, personally, and and, um, I think you'll agree, the fact that 
we as human beings want to know. Oh, absolutely. You and know? you just mentioned something that's very, very prominent. You had said visits from your deceased loved ones and know where your deceased loved ones go. And that was never anything that was really in my mind at the time when I was writing about the ghost stories. I was right. just simply telling the ghost stories and the experiences of the people that live there and trying to get them to live together in harmony if the spirit didn't want to move into the light. Right. But I ended up adding in the other strange phenomena categories because I wanted to be able to add stories such as what you just mentioned, visits from deceased loved ones. I also wrote about Bigfoot and UFOs, which are not necessarily ghostly, and hence the other strange phenomena category worked out very well. Right. But then to be able to tell people about those visits from their deceased loved ones, they're not ghosts, right? They're, they're your loved ones on the mm. other side coming to visit you. And people have those experiences all the time mm. in symbolism and or just in in visits. And so to hear some of those stories, it's just amazing. Also stories about when people are with their loved ones at their time of death. Those are crazy, cool stories. And that also makes you, if you're a person who's never had an experience like that and has those questions, are my deceased loved ones still with me? Those tor those stories tell you that, yes, it's true. They are always with us. And here's an example. And I think it's great for people to have that faith and that knowing. Well, it gives a validation that, you know, you don't just go into the darkness. There, There is the ability to there. There is the ability to say that one more thing you know, that you didn't get to say. Yes. You know, but personally and professionally, I've experienced that through both person as well as my job. You know, I was with a lot of people that did pass on and, you know, they said, hey, tell my wife this, tell my husband this, tell my children this, you know, tell my parents this, tell my grandparents this. Um, and it was their last words. And mm. when you go to deliver those words, the response after you, with the unfortunate news, you know, the response back from them were, well, I didn't get to say. I wish I would have said, you know, I didn't say I love you when they walked out the door this morning. I didn't say I was proud of them when I walked out the door this morning. So yeah, it gives it gives the opportunity. I think that that's a brilliant, you know, opportunity for that. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So, it, you started collecting these stories before you started ghost hunting. At pro, I will say professionally because you have a team, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, you started collecting the ghost stories first, or did you start ghost hunting first? I started ghost hunting first, like I mentioned to you earlier with girlfriends of mine. We would just go away for weekends here and there. One of them would say, hey, I heard that the Williams Inn in Massachusetts haunted. You want to go there for a weekend? And so we would. Not your normal and that slumber was, party. No, but it was my kind of slumber party. And it wasn't until 20, let's see, 2019 when I had decided to start writing the books about the true accounts and one person led me to another person. You got, you get referrals along the way and somebody had referred me to the president of the Ogdensburg mines, the Sterling Hill mines that you mentioned. And I was speaking to him and he was telling me how he's a scientist and he can't explain the stuff that's happening there. He's not supposed to believe in it, but it's happening to him and he has no explanation for it. And kind of like an afterthought, he said, hey, why don't you just bring your paranormal team into the mines and we'll take you all over the grounds and you can see what you come up with. 
And oh my goodness, for a ghost hunter like myself, that was the opportunity of a lifetime. Bring in my team. I was like, yeah, definitely. Thanks. And then I realized, wow, I don't have a team. I'm going to have to get one together. <laughs> so I'm thinking, okay, um, well, let me go through my files of people that I've met in the past when I've gone on investigations with my girlfriends. And then let me go into my little catalog of people that I interviewed for my book, because there are a lot of interesting mm -hmm. people like you and I who are very sensitive to spirit, who have had experiences their entire lives that might want to go on this little adventure that lived locally. And so we probably were about, I want to say maybe off the top of my head, I think it was maybe seven or 10 of us that ended up going to the mines on that particular weekend in February of 2019. It was my birthday, actually. I decided to do it on my birthday uh, weekend. Happy birthday to me. And we were in the mines for about six hours. And it was just a phenomenal experience. It was just amazing. And that was really the start of everything. Because at that point, you know, when I was writing the book, and people were asking me, what's your team's name? I just said, Oh, Lady Ghostbusters, not really thinking at all. It was just how I was referring to them. Because at the time, the core group was ladies, there was just one guy at the time. And he didn't mind being a paranormal investigator on the Lady Ghostbuster team. And it's kind of been that way ever since. We have about four or five men who still mm. are part of the team, but we are still referring to ourselves as Lady Ghostbusters. Well, this works. We all have a feminine side. People just have to recognize, sure. right? So men have a feminine yeah. side as well as a masculine side, and it so it works. And Sure, it's, and it doesn't make them any less important no. either. I mean, they're they're very critical to my team. They really put a lot into our investigations. And as a team, when we work together, we have all this positive energy to get to what it is, that ultimate goal. And yeah, so yeah. Ghostbusting is ghostbusting. I twist my arm. It's like, you know, do you want to go? Yes. <laughs> kind of one of those situations that you can't pass up. So what kind of equipment did you take the first time? The very first time, the mediums that I had with me who were sensitive don't usually have equipment, but everybody had their phones to record. Some people had audio recorders. We did have K2s with us that are these little gadgets that light up when there's energy around, and then you have to kind of debunk whether it's an electrical power source nearby so that you can uh, scratch it off the list, so to speak. If it's, if it's lighting up when you're near that source, then you know, it's the electrical source that's creating it to light up. But if there's no electrical source nearby, then, you know, it's some sort of other energy, but that was pretty much all that we had when we went in that very first time. And since then we've kind of stuck to those traditional methods as well. I mean, we do have dousing rods that we use every now and again, for your listeners who don't know, it's the same kind of tools they used back in the day when they wanted to discover water, where water was on a property. They would use the dousing rods to direct them to that area of water under the ground. We use them to get yes and no answers from spirit, especially someone like me. I'm not as sensitive or uh, as sensitive as some of the people on my team who can actually hear, smell, see spirit. I can sense them, but not in the same respect that they do. So when I have a dousing rod, I can actually ask a question and they'll use the dousing rod to give me an answer. And I do the same with the pendulum. It just depends on 
what the spirit wants to use. Like I'll give them an option, believe it or not. I'll say, I have these dowsing rods. If you prefer to answer this way, you can. Or with the pendulum, it's, it's a little gem, stone, crystal on uh, a chain. And you you can hang it on a, a hanger so that it's immobile and not moving. And when it does move in a back and forth motion, let's say, or in a circular motion, that will be the spirit's way of saying yes or no to your question. So that's kind of what I'll use along with my K2, but the other mediums, as I said, have their own gifts that they've grown up with and sometimes uh, may use a K2 or an audio, but other than that, they use the, their, the senses that they have naturally to read the spirit. Of, what kind of evidence do you collect uh, in utilizing that equipment? I'm assuming, I'm assuming video as well as the audio. Yes, we get video footage. We do get um, pictures. When you take pictures with your camera, we do get audio. And and that's not to say that every investigation you go on, you're going to find something mm -hmm. because it's not like you see on TV. That's all about entertainment and trying to make something happen so that you can feel the experience. But when you're on an actual investigation, you can't expect anything to happen because something might not. And you could be there, like I said, for six hours and have nothing happen at all. It just depends on how the spirits feel that night and whether they connect with any of you that are there and if they want to get a message to you somehow. And sometimes it's even someone's deceased loved one. Like we'll go on an investigation because somebody says they've got mm -hmm. something going on and they don't know what it is. And you're thinking it might be a haunting of a spirit, but it turns out to be like someone's dead brother or their dead grandfather trying to get a message through, which is kind of cool because then you get resolution for the people that didn't know what was going on, that their family member was trying to get through and, and tell them that they're okay. So you get, yeah, closure is a good thing. Yeah. Cl closure is a good thing. And, and, and obviously those of us that are within this type of media understand that uh, what you see on TV could be, 20 hours worth of tape and edited down to a 40 minute program. It's not, it's not even 20 hours worth of tape. I've been on sizzle reel before and you're pretty much there for a night and they'll do their, they'll do whatever it is that they're doing. And if they don't get anything, they're going to want to make it happen. Right. So now how did you get on to, um, uh, Paranormal Caught on Camera. That's my wife and I watch that consistently. That's a really good program. We enjoy it. Did you Did you ever see the episode that we were on? We just started watching it this year, and you said that this uh, happened in twenty twenty. So, um, yeah. in reality, no. But I subscribe to the channel, so I may be able to go back and watch it. And I plan on doing that. If you can't, Michael, you can go on my website. I have the link right there. So you can just look in the gallery and you'll see the link and you from can there. pick it up from there. But with, with that very first investigation, we all had our cameras going at the same time when this misty fog interacted with us. Wow. So after we got home, I everybody sends me their footage because when we go on an investigation, we're ultimately there to have the investigation and if we're there for residents to help them resolve whatever issue it is that's going on and get the spirits message out that they want. But if we're on an investigation, like we were at the mines, any kind of footage, everybody will send to me after the fact, because they know that I'm going to write a chapter on it. And um, also I'd like to add that if we do go into, let's say a, a specific location, I never disclose to the members of my group 
what's going on there. Ultimately, I know what's going on there because people uh, have been coming to me with their stories or I've interviewed them already. So I'm privy to what's been going on in that location, but I never share it with any of the members because I want to see if they're going to come up with the same sort of stuff that the other people are experiencing. And then it's also validation and uh, corroboration for what it is that we have unearthed as actually happening. It's not something we pulled out of the wind or made up. So when we got home from that initial Sterling Hill mine investigation, everybody sent me everything that they had and I was ciphering through it and everybody got footage on that misty font that we were interacting with. So I took the best footage from it and sent it into paranormal caught on camera and they liked it so much. They decided to do a feature on us. Oh, very cool. Yeah. That's very cool. You know, was, that, I was going to ask you how you how you pick your. Uh, I'm sorry, we have a delay, Eleanor. My apologies when I, mean, I start speaking before you do. Um, the uh, I was going to let me pause for a second so I can cut this out. I was going to ask you uh, how you pick a location, um, but it, do you get it from your stories? And like you just said, most of your team members or all of your team members really don't know the backstory from some of these places that you go to. Uh, so how do you pick it? Do you get a story first or do you seek out? Something like the Sterling Hill Mines. Now it's become so well known. We were we were probably one of the first groups that ever got in there for an investigation. I think mm -hmm. we were actually the second one that ever got in there for a group investigation. Since then, now they have like at Halloween, they always have people buying tickets to go into the Haunted Mines. But back then it was... It was not, that was it was just a museum for kids to come to from schools. So I just knew about that haunted location from interviewing people that said, "Oh, the mines are haunted. This is what happened to me when I was there. This is what happened to me when I worked there, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera." So I will get these stories of locations from people who have reached out to me, and so if I've already written a story about it, I, I try and get in there for investigation if I'm able to. For example, there was this one location called the Sea Captain's House in Vernon. I had written about that building in my first book, but never had the opportunity to go in there because by the time I was going in there, my friend sold her store and moved out of that building. It wasn't until after that first book came out and the new store owner reached out to me and said, oh my gosh, I know you read you know, you wrote about this building in your first book, but we've got a lot of stuff going on. Would you like to bring your paranormal team in? And so that's when we went into that building. So I kind of get it from word of mouth or from people who reach out to me with their stories. And one thing leads to another thing, leads to another story. It, it kind of feeds off of one another, so to speak. So like a mountain, what's it? What's the most compelling piece of evidence that you've ever collected? Was it that, that mist that you got from the different cameras? Or was it something more significant? No, that was, I, I don't like to say, I don't like to say something's more significant than another. Yeah, you know, uh, because there are, there, are, there are different forms of evidence that you can get. By far, that video was definitely astounding. But I also have a photo that I took in the cemetery on a, a cemetery tour at night of a full body apparition. And I think that's just as compelling. And then we've gotten some mm. 
audio where you actually hear a voice answering you back. And it's none of the crew members. It's just in the conversation and you listen back and it's there. It's like, oh my God, did I just hear that? That's just as compelling to me in, in the evidence, in the way of evidence. And then there's also the SLS camera, which is kind of cool. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's it's kind of a video camera where the, if, if you were to stand in front of it, you would appear to the person viewing as a stick figure. And if you go out of the frame and move away, and all of a sudden there's a stick figure standing there and there's nobody there, then you know that that energy is actually a spirit. That's really cool too. I mean, we went on an investigation in an antique shop and I had the team member who was focusing her SLS camera at this uh, pram, an antique pram that was hanging from the ceiling. And we were trying to debunk whether there was air or something on in the building and realized there was nothing nearby that was making this thing swing. And we had earlier made contact with children's spirits that were living in this antique shop. And when we focus the SLS camera on the pram, you see these kids hanging from this pram and swinging back and forth, oh, that's <laughs> which amazing. was really, which was really, really cool. Yeah, just, and I, you know what? It's funny because you're, you're going to have people, you're going to have people that watch that video and you're going to have people that listen to your audio and you're going to have people that view your photos and they're going to say, nah, it's nothing. It's not real. And you know what? That's fine. You can believe whatever you want. I'm not out to convince anybody. All I need to know is for for myself. If you don't well, yeah. believe me, it's okay. Exactly. It's your experience is what you saw, what you yeah. felt, and what you captured. It's kind of, some people call exactly. it compelling. Uh, compelling. I, I should change the term to crazy cool. Yeah. <laughs> not compelling. It's crazy cool. Do yeah. You, um, have you found, I've spoken to other paranormal investigators, uh, both male and female, and I seem to find a pattern that uh, the majority of female paranormal investigators seem to get more response from from entities from the other side. Do you feel that way? I don't. I, I don't feel like one is more over another. I do feel, though, the way you present yourself is the way you're going to receive a message. I think it's very important as an investigator. First of all, Lady Ghostbuster, it's kind of an intimidating name because I don't like to really think of us as ghostbusters. I'm here for the spirit. That's my main goal. My goal is to get them recognition and their message out. So when you say Lady Ghostbusters is really just a playful name, it's not literal. I feel like paranormal investigator is probably more apropos, but less appealing than Lady Ghostbuster. So when we approach a spirit, we approach them as if they're a human in death because they were human in life and you want to respect them as you would respect another being. And it's, really obvious to me that the way they were in life, they'll be in death, whatever their personality was in life, you will find that in death. And that's humanizing them as well. So you want to approach them as if you were approaching another person. And so I'm not sure if it's fair for me to say that maybe men are more blunt or rough in, in their way of speaking. Maybe that's why they're saying that lady ghostbusters are less intimidating. I don't know. I haven't found that to be the case because the men that are on my team 
are very respectful and soft-spoken and professional in the way they handle things. So that's why when you asked me that question, I think it's fair to say that it's not really the men and the women in the way of describing it. It's in the way they approach it. I agree with that. I think more women are more, uh, from that perspective, more compassionate, more understanding, more uh, from from even some of the other individuals that I have watched on TV. We won't mention any names, but you know, sometimes they're very gruff. They're very uh, demanding. They're very you know, talk to me now, kind of a situation. Instead of hey, you got something to say? Can you you know share with us? Share with and us, believe please. and believe me, I've worked with some women that are like that too, and I don't work with them anymore because I, I'm not impressed with people that yeah. are like that. Like you know, come into my face. You know, do something like really? No, that's that's not the way I handle things. And it, and when you are with people like that, it just brings a negative energy to what you're yeah. doing. So I don't, I don't end up working with them anymore because I'm all about the positive energy and getting a positive response and being respectful and kind to Which them. Which is a good thing. That's a very good thing. Uh, from the other perspective, have, have you ever been confronted or dealt with any evil entities during your your um paranormal investigations i don't want to say evil i just want to say angry mean frustrated that's pretty much it uh if i was to ever come into contact with something evil i'd have to take a step back and let some of the older team members who have more experience deal with it because i don't professionally i don't have the experience or the know-how to do that nor would I really want to, <laughs> right. but we we have dealt with angry, mean, frustrated. From that perspective, has any, any member of your team been attacked? Yeah, yeah. Um, in one case, uh, we were in a home in, in Washington, New Jersey, and the homeowners, as I mentioned to you earlier, I don't disclose to my team members before they come into an investigation what I already know. The homeowners had been experiencing a spirit that tried to shove them down the stairs. And when we were at that investigation, one of the team members was being pushed as if something was trying to push them down the stairs. And then in that same instance, the homeowner had mentioned to me that the grandson was afraid to go downstairs in the basement because the man said he was going to beat him up. The medium I had with me that day when we were downstairs in the basement said that she could visually see a man beating the shit out of somebody down there. So it kind of just validated what the family had experienced because they were experiencing the same thing. That's one example. Then going back to that sea captain's house that I mentioned to you earlier, that particular story has a good brother and bad brother back in history. And uh, the two mediums that were there on this one particular night one was, I guess, receiving the bad brother and one was receiving the good brother. And they were kind of fighting with each other verbally and not getting along. And at one point, the one medium got scratched and bruised on her body uh, from the bad brother entity. Yeah, that's unfortunate in regard to those, because I think that, um, at least in my experience and, uh, what I have observed in other instances, there always is a good and an evil, a, a positive and a negative, and negative entities sometimes reach out at the wrong times, and that's not good. 
isn't just you know it's not good. Is there any place that you that you've investigated that you would refuse to go back into? No. What's come, no. Like, can you tell me what I know? You talked about the the um, the the mine, for example, and the evidence that you had gotten mm-hmm. there. Do you have have anything that's a favorite? You know, that you really maybe a favorite or one or two that you really stick out in your mind that like, wow, that was the best experience that I've had. Well, definitely, definitely that Sterling Hill Mines is really a wonderful experience that I, I would I would go back there in a second if I could. And I know that there are some television programs that have done stories on the paranormal in that mind and they they try to make it out like it's bad in there and that you know there's something really evil lurking in those mm-hmm. minds and it's not true at all it's like a brotherhood in those minds it's it's a really cool experience down there i don't think there's anything bad in there at all so yeah by far the sterling hill mines is a, is a great place but one of my other favorites is a local building um that used to have on the grounds, the hospital, the, the very first hospital that was in this area. And there was a house adjacent to the hospital that would be the doctor and the nurses quarters, I guess, if they needed to stay over or if they were on a late shift, they would stay in this home. And since the hospital has been totally torn down, which was a shame because it was like just nearing its hundredth birthday when it was, destroyed but the house is still there and i've had the opportunity to go into that house and that was a very 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 interesting investigation and it was just me and deb zelinsky my um one of my lady ghostbusters just she and i had gone in there and i have to say it's one of my favorites and would go back there in a second so it what do your kids think about you being a, a ghost hunter, a paranormal investigator? Do they have an opinion? I know you have got you got a couple of kids, and you got a, you got some fur babies in there as well, right? I do. I have three fur fur babies, and they're very supportive. Very supportive. Um, my youngest daughter, she they, they both my girls are definitely sensitive to spirit. They've had things happen to them, but my youngest is afraid of it and doesn't want anything to do with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And my oldest. She's still trying to figure things out. She's definitely empathic like I am, but none of them have. I mean, they're very supportive. My older daughter was my editor for my 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 uh, first two paranormal books. No, oh, three. Cool. Well, the three paranormal books, yeah. My niece is the editor on the one that I'm writing now. Um, and my husband, he's one of those believer disbelievers, kind of. You know, You know he believes in it, but he's trying to be macho and say, no, that doesn't exist. But he's supportive, too. He... He, you know, backs me up 100%. So, well, that's that kind of makes it almost, almost a family business. Yeah. <laughs> almost, almost. You, you just need to, you need to take your husband on one of your, your compelling investigations and give him a little. I did. <laughs> I did. And he was like a five year old kid. When are we going home? <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? Uh, are are, seriously, yet? when are we going home? So I leave him home. I don't take him with me at all because the last thing I want is for him to be saying, when are we going home? Is it time to go home yet? Are we done yet? Are we done <laughs> so, yet? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. No. That, so that, I'd rather him stay home and I'll go by myself. That's pretty interesting. That's cool. <clears throat> <laughs> so let's talk about your books. 
And uh, I know that you, uh, we talked briefly about him earlier. Um, well, actually, let me back up. You've got a podcast. And on your podcast. I do. I have two. You have two of them. You have one that's a live show yes. and you have one that is uh, uh, like a regular podcast. Are they both a, a within recorded the, one. Mm-hmm. Are they both within the paranormal supernatural re- realm? They are. The first one is called Eleanor Wagner's Strange and Scary World, and it's out of the Paranormal UK radio network. And that one started last, I want to say, I think it was last November. A friend had just planted the seed in my head, and I said, yeah, you know, I might look into doing that. And so I kind of went through my catalog of people that I've met over time and asked people for information and picked people's brains. And that's how I got connected with the Paranormal UK radio network. The gentleman was extremely kind, Mark Johnson, in helping me set up the equipment, which equipment to buy and how to go about doing things. And then I asked him, he had mentioned briefly, he said, his station is always looking for new shows. And I kind of said, well, how would I pitch my idea to your station? And he said, well, pitch it to me. I own half the station. (laughs) So I did. <laughs> yeah, so I did. I I told him what it was that I wanted to do and he liked it and he was like, come on board. So I jumped at the chance and with that particular podcast, it's really not limited to paranormal. I, I talk about Bigfoot and UFOs and I do have people on talking about near-death experiences. The range is far and wide when it comes to that particular program. But then I was speaking to somebody from recently coast to coast entertainment network, and they were looking for a paranormal show to go live. And to be honest with you, I was a little nervous about that because with the pre-recorded, although it takes me like six hours to edit an episode, it's much easier to manage your time doing a pre-recorded show than it is for live. I feel like I'm really stressed and overwhelmed with the live show. So I was kind of hesitant, but I thought, you know what? I think this would be a, a good thing for me. And so I premiered my first show on that network last week. And I think it went pretty well. I mean, I do have some things that I've got uh, to nip and tuck here and there, but for the most part, I thought it was a really good show and I was excited about it. And I think uh, doing it biweekly has been wise for me because I do f- want to focus a lot on my writing and, the, and getting the books out. So the biweekly is working right now. But who knows, when I retire, maybe I'll do it weekly. There I'm not too far off from retiring. So, hey, wait, what? Tell me the names of both podcasts or the podcast and the live show. The um, the pre-recorded show is Eleanor Wagner's Strange and Scary World on the Paranormal UK radio network. And the live show is Eleanor Wagner's Creepin' It Real on Coast to Coast network. Creepin' It Real. That's a unique... Creepin' It Real. <laughs> yeah, and it's unique... and there's a, play, there's a play on the word real. It's not R-E-A-L, it's R-E-E-L, like a reel of film, because it's live, so... I kind of played with the words there a little yeah, bit. Yeah, very unique, very unique. Um, your books. I know that you've got yes. five of them out, correct? No, I have four. Four of them out. You've got you've got I know another yeah. the romantic comedy that's up on the shelf we talked about that's going to come out very soon, hopefully. Well, the and, first the very the very first the very first book that I wrote is called Dream a Little Dream, and that was the paranormal romance. And then I went on to write the Sussex County Hauntings and Other Strange Phenomena book. 
which ended up being a series because it was followed with Sussex County Hauntings and Other Strange Phenomena Part 2. And then I went on to write Warren County Hauntings and Other Strange Phenomena. And currently I'm working on Sussex County Hauntings and Other Strange Phenomena Part 3. And where can anybody find those books? You can get them all through my website, authoreleanorwagner.com. You'll find the links to Amazon, eBay. They were in all the local bookstores. You can get signed copies directly through me, but all you need to do is go to the website, authoreleanorwagner.com to find them. And I'll have links to that in the show notes for everybody to have convenient way to get a hold of you either way. Um, you got anything down the road that you're going to be investigating that we can be enticed by? Sure. Recently, I've been blessed to make contacts in Boonton, New Jersey, which is in Morris County, which is one of the counties next to where I currently live. And we've been investigating the old Elks Club building, which is 100 mm. years old, and mm. a, a library that was donated by the Holmes family back in the day that's haunted. So we've been diligently doing investigations in that arena. And we've been invited to go to the home of the, an, an actress from the 1800s who was well known. And she had this home in Sussex County and we've been invited to go and do an investigation there mm -hmm. and at Burnbray mansion in Glens Bay, New York. So we've got a, a full, schedule coming up of things that will be enticing to hear about and read about. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Um, I'm too bad I'm not on the West Coast. I'd sneak in. <laughs> yeah, I would love to have you. If you're ever up this way, look me up. I will have to do that. I promise I'll have to do that as we mm -hmm. can go on a little ghost hunting. Uh, we'll call it a ghost hunting vacation. That's what we'll do. There you go. <laughs> uh, Eleanor, what this is one more thing before you go. Uh, so before we go, is there, are there any words of wisdom that you might have for either a budding author or a budding uh, paranormal investigator? For a budding author, I think it's really important for you to get your niche. It's, it's important for you to kind of get that grab and go that's going to entice people to want to read your books. I mean, I'm... I'm the first one to tell you that I, I love my dream, a little dream book. And I think it's really good. I'm very proud of that accomplishment, but there are so many people that write paranormal romance out there. So I think that when I started writing the true account books, I really found my niche in that arena. So mm. keep at it, but find your niche for an author. And then for a paranormal investigator, Look to your local area. There are investigative teams all around you. You have the benefit of Google these days where you can just put it in your system and come up with one local to you and ask if you could go and participate and, and learn and listen to have that experience. And what I've said to you earlier is respect that spirit. Treat them as if you would treat the person next to you because they were humans in life and they are humans in death. Outstanding words of wisdom. I really appreciate it. Eleanor, thank you for sharing your journey uh, with us. It's been an amazing journey where you're at now. I appreciate you and what you give us back in the form of uh, knowing that there's always something on the other side and that we have the opportunity to uh, reach out and listen or talk or see it and get some closure. So thank you for joining me on the show. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you very much for joining us on One More Thing Before You Go. I really appreciate each and every one of you taking the time to be part of this conversation. Please don't forget to check out this episode with ways to connect with our guest on our website, beforeyougopodcast.com. There you can find links to your favorite platforms as well as find us on YouTube. And I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go. Check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. One More Thing Before You Go podcast is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.